Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 2, and I just wanted to make mention that one of the announcement slides uh, said with regard to the Sanctity of Life service that it's at 2 o'clock, but I've had confirmed that it's at 2.30, so 2.30 this afternoon for the Sanctity of Life service. Proverbs 2, and each week we have an outline for you for the message, those who are here in person Those were at the main doors on the way in, but we will have the outline points on the screen in case you didn't pick one of those up. Those watching on live stream, you have an outline button next to or underneath your media player. You click on that, you'll be able to see the outline. Now today is the fourth message in our series in the book of Proverbs. It's a book that at first glance looks disconnected and haphazard in its arrangement. But actually there is a structure uh, to it And that structure helps us see why it's laid out as it is. The book of Proverbs is actually a collection of separate collections of wisdom material that they were brought together over time. Now, as we've seen, there are seven of those collections that later became the book of Proverbs. You have an introduction, and then you have Proverbs of Solomon, the sayings of the wise, more Proverbs of Solomon. I think we have a slide with that on it so folks can see it. Do we have that? Thank you. The introduction, the Proverbs of Solomon, the sayings of the wise, more sayings of the wise, additional collection of Proverbs from Solomon, the sayings of Agur, and then the sayings of King Lemuel. Now we are obviously in the first of those that comprises the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. These nine chapters are comprised of ten lectures. Ten lectures that a father gave to his son, and then there are two interludes amongst those ten lectures in these first nine chapters. So it's a total of 12 lessons in the introduction. Two weeks ago, we saw from chapter 1, verses 8 through 19, the first of the ten lessons that a father taught to his son, telling him the benefits of a life that's characterized by wisdom. And then last week, from chapter 1, verses 20 to 33, It was the first of those two interludes, and we were taken away from the father's home classroom to the city so that the son could see the city's enticements toward foolishness. And now today, we begin chapter 2 with the second of those ten lessons from a father to his son. Let's pray now and ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for giving us the desire to be here with your people, gathered around your word with attentive minds and open hearts to learn from you. Grant us, Lord, to appropriate what you tell us, apply what you tell us, so that your word does indeed achieve its designed purpose, to change your people into the image of your dear son, the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, Proverbs chapter 2 is divided equally into two sections. You see it's got 22 verses, two sections of 11 verses each. The first 11 verses, the first half, pertains to the development or the production of character. And that's why I say in your outline, first of all, that wisdom produces character. Now, I remind you that the Old Testament, of which the book of Proverbs is part, was originally written in Hebrew. Believe it or not, this entire chapter of 22 verses is one single sentence in Hebrew. 
one continuous sentence. Now, when it was first written, there were no chapter and verse numbers. Those were added much later to help us find things so that I can say things like turn to Proverbs 2 and you're able to find it easily. But the 22 verses in this chapter are rightly assigned as verses because the chapter is structured into 22 sections grammatically. And most scholars believe that that's the case because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And therefore, it's arranged this way to suggest completeness. Right here in one chapter, you really have all that's needed for a person to grow in godliness. The rest is really, is really details. The rest, as we're going to see through the book of Proverbs, is expanding or emphasizing portions of what we have here. And those details and their explanations are obviously needed. That's why we have them in God's Word. But you have the elements that you need for spiritual growth right here. I had the privilege several years ago to sit under the teaching of the now late biblical counselor David Paulison when I took some courses at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Paulison wrote an article that we were required to read and for which I'm thankful. It was titled, Counsel Ephesians. And he made the convincing case that in the New Testament, you have in the six chapters of Ephesians all that you need to counsel someone about any issue because that book covers our identity in Christ all the way to the practical implications of living that out. And similarly, you have in seed form here and broad outlines what is required for spiritual growth. Wisdom produces character. But I say in your outline, it does so only if it's received. Wisdom produces character, but it must be received. Verse 1, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Now notice that in these first four verses of chapter 2, I read the first two, but in these first four verses, you have the conditions for developing character because it says three times, if you do these things, in verse 1, in verse 3, and in verse 4. And then when we get to verse 5, we'll see what happens if indeed these things are done because verse 5 starts with then. And verse 9 also starts with then. If you do these things, then this is what will happen. Now the second lesson from the father to the son starts with my son, just as the first one did, going back to chapter 1 and verse 8, where it said, listen, my son, to your father's instruction. But this lesson builds on and advances what was taught in that first one. Because it says this in verse 1, Accept my words. Accepting is an important step beyond just listening. Back in chapter 1 and verse 8, the father said, listen, my son. Now he's saying, accept, my son. You cannot accept if you don't listen, so it has to begin there. But if it stays at just listening, you will not reap the benefits of what's being taught. Accepting the wise teaching from a parent, a teacher, a mentor is about internalizing what you've heard. It's about making it your own. 
Now, this need to accept or welcome or receive godly teaching is similar to what we see spoken of in the New Testament, where the Bible says only the person with the Spirit accepts or welcomes the teaching that comes from God. Other people can hear it, other people can listen to it, and in a sense, they can even understand it, but only those who belong to God have an ear to, not only have an ear to hear, but a heart ready to receive what God says. That's why Pastor Larry read earlier, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot, in one sense, I'll explain that sense in a moment, understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. Now, our own Dr. Combs has done a good bit of work on this passage in 1 Corinthians over the years, and he explains uh, that when it says the unsaved or the non-Christian person cannot understand, it does not mean that they, they do not know what's being said when they hear the Bible taught, or that they can't even process it as they would anything else they hear. In fact, they can listen and hear and process and evaluate. But when they do, their verdict is that it's foolishness. Notice it says they consider the things from God as foolishness. Well, they, they can give that consideration, or to put it another way, they, they could not give that consideration. They cannot make an evaluation unless they hear it and understand it at least at one level. But they reject it after having heard and processing it. What the unbeliever does not understand is what God's truth will do for them. Why it's important, and therefore they reject it rather than accept it. But in our passage, if one accepts the wisdom being imparted, then and only then will the benefits be reaped. And that happens for those who have ears to truly hear and receive. It means they have to be saved. They have to be a child of God. So parents, your first duty is to pray earnestly for your children. That they come to Christ. That He develops within them a desire to hear from Him. And when they hear from you, if you are following Him, then what you say resonates with them. So we pray for the salvation of our children, that they have hearts that are ready to receive what God says. And that's done most often through us as His instruments. If not, they will not recognize the value in what they're hearing. Now, when I teach parenting, I say that there are three phases of childhood development. I'm going to try to go through those fairly quickly here, but I think it's important that we recognize that, of course, there is development within childhood. And these are three phases that are not unique to me. Many others have identified these, perhaps by other names, but here they are. The first is the control phase. And the key word and the key issue in that phase from the ages 0 to 6 is authority, establishing authority. And then there's the formative phase from ages 7 to 12, and the development, the instilling of character. And then the evaluation phase 
in the teen years, and the key issue is wisdom. Now, with regard to this issue of con the control phase and that of authority, the father in these lessons is basing his authority not on his patriarchal position or on tradition, but he's basing that authority on the Lord himself. Verse 6 in chapter 2 says, the Lord gives wisdom. So it's not only the child who's under the father's authority, the father is under God's authority. We're all under authority, and we need to acknowledge that explicitly to our children. We communicate to our children, I'm under obligation before God to lead you and teach you. But this is a good thing, my child. A good God has given you a good gift of good authorities to provide good things for your life. A good God has given you the good gift of good authorities to provide good things for your life. And it's our hope and our prayer that our children will become convinced of that. Yes, this is, this is a good thing from a good God. And notice, it's the authority who decides what's good. <laughs> Many parents just don't have the confidence to tell their kids what to do. Let me tell you, parents, you're called to do that. You're called by God to do that. You're called under God to take what God has said we are to be about and instill that in your children. Do not be shy about telling your child about what is good, what is right, and therefore what they must do. There is a confidence on the part of the teacher, the parent, the mentor, if indeed they are following God's commands. If we're doing that, let's tell our children that. Let's implement that in our parenting. So there is this control phase. Who's in control? Who's the authority? You establish that early on. You establish that early on. My experience, my observation, the book of Proverbs teaches that other things will generally go much, go much better. We fail at that. It's not impossible, but it's more difficult. And then you have the second phase, the formative phase, where character is sought to be instilled. Now, the point in your outline says wisdom produces character. So that in order for this character to happen here, there must be a wisdom impulse in the child at a young age to hear and obey so that the character of this second phase comes to be, and then in the teen years, they display whether or not it's godly wisdom that's coming out of this character or whether this character is a counterfeit that just does what I'm told. It will reveal itself. And so you have the third phase, the evaluation phase. And the key issue is wisdom. I mentioned last week that we parents need to engage in what I call controlled exposure for our kids. That we don't shelter our kids so that they know nothing about what's happening in the world, but we don't throw them out into the world either. But rather it's controlled, intentional exposure and by the time they are teenagers, they are gradually being expo exposed to more and more. So they begin applying what they've been taught to what they're now being confronted with and doing so of their own volition. They, at this point, are displaying, God willing, wisdom, the application of what they've learned. Acceptance, 
receiving, welcoming the truth of God's wisdom through parents, through teachers, through mentors, sets the stage for all that comes next. Without it, one can fake character and wisdom for a while, but it will reveal itself at some point. Verse 1 says to store up my commands within you. The Father is saying what Solomon would say. These are really Solomon's words. I remind you of that. These lessons are giving as just the father to a son, an unidentified son. But going back to chapter 1 and verse 1, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. So what the father is saying here is what Solomon would say. And that's why many scholars believe when he says, store up my commands within you, it's a reference, it's an allusion to the temple built by none other than Solomon, where the inner sanctuary housed the word of God. And unlike pagan temples, which housed idols whom their worshipers manipulated in order to attain life in Solomon's temple, and now in the son's heart, the Lord's moral will, as given in his word, is to rule. And submitting to it is what gives life. In the New Testament, the Bible says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. These words, verse 1, also called commands in verse 1, are to be internalized and are therefore within you and so are with you wherever you go for whatever you encounter, available to be called upon and called into action whenever needed. So this introduction is setting then the table, the foundation, for the aphorisms, the, the proverbs that we most associate with proverbs, these memorable phrases. The idea is to, to now love these, hear them, accept them, even memorize them, take them with you and use them as the situation requires. Verse 2 clarifies and intensifies what's said in verse 1. Turning, verse 2, your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. You know, if I instruct someone about whatever, and they're not at least writing it down or typing it in, then I conclude they're not fully engaged or committed. I mean, this, this happens most over the years when I've given someone a task to do, and I'm trying to explain to them this is what needs to go into it, and they're just sort of sitting there listening to me. Now, if it's just a you know, one-sentence explanation, okay. But if you're actually taking a position, you're going to take on a responsibility, I'm trying to explain all that goes into it, then just, I'll just let you all know that I'm, I'm looking for like something to be written down. Now most of the time I provide notes for you when I'm doing that. So here's what's going on. But still, as I'm talking, just humor me by making me think you're listening to what I'm saying. And write it down. You know, this is the difference between the student who's eager to learn versus the guy slouching in his chair and saying, you know, in effect, let's see if you can motivate me. What we're being said, what's being said here is, no, you come to the teaching ready to learn, eager to learn. We have too many people, too many people in our churches who come to the gathering of God's people and they come with the attitude that says, let's see what you can do to motivate me. It's one of the reasons that our churches are the way they are. 
because the churches feel the pressure to incite people, provoke people, get them excited, get them to move. It becomes a production. We have to get people jazzed, but listen, and stimulated, but it's artificial. And then it goes away. It doesn't last. In verses 3 and 4, there's a logical now escalation from the more passive acceptance of wisdom in verses 1 and 2, in the ear and heart, to now more aggressive activity. Verse 3, Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. The person who does what's described in verses 1 and 2 will want more wisdom, and they'll actively seek it. This is like the young person who's asking questions and putting things together and comes to you with a teachable spirit desiring to know from you and apply to their life what God has taught you. I'm just going to say as a quick aside here, this is one of the many things that I so love about my two sons-in-law. They do this. You come and ask questions. I don't always have the answers. But they want the answers. Praise God for that. This should be, friends, the position of all of us, though. Not just youngsters, not just new believers. All of us come to the Lord and come to His Word desiring, yearning for His instruction so that we can take the next step in our spiritual walk. Wisdom produces character if it is received. And if so, I say, it will develop knowledge. Verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. By internalizing wise parental or teacher or mentor instruction, one will come to fear and know God. And when verse 5 says understand, it means you'll see life as it's meant to be seen. You'll see the world as it really is. And so, in so doing, you will fear the Lord. You will revere, you will be in awe of God. You'll place him in his rightful place of priority and see life through a God-centered lens. You will regard him first and foremost in all decisions and actions. In every relationship, you'll recall that there are always at least three persons. And God is always the most important. (laughs) If married couples would remember that, As you have problems, as you struggle, as you fight, remember it's not just the two of you. There's at least three in every relationship. And the most important is God. You will find the knowledge of God when it says that. It's not mere intellectual knowledge, but an intimacy with God. You come to see God as the prized jewel that He is, and you don't live for Him merely because you're told to, but because you want to. You come to do as Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, and as Jesus said, is the first and greatest commandment. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. And here's why. Because, verse 6, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So when it starts with four, it's saying the reason that you will have the things mentioned in verse 5, the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God, 
They're not just any fear, reverence, awe, but they are of the Lord. And it's not just any knowledge, but knowledge of God. Why? For it's the Lord who gives wisdom. And from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now God does give some forms of wisdom in common grace to everybody, even people who are, who are not Christians. Later in the book of Proverbs, almost at the very end, it'll speak about the animals and the instinctual wisdom that God has given to them. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 28, it speaks of the farmer's practical knowledge for raising crops. And there's whatever moral understanding that humanity possesses through God's common grace given to all. But, but here it's talking about the special spiritual ethical knowledge and understanding of the Lord that God gave His people through Solomon's Proverbs, which are disseminated through parents and teachers and mentors. The Proverbs of Solomon came from God, and therefore, when parents and teachers and mentors impart them, they're conveying God's instructions and being used of Him to produce this fruit. Verse 7 says, He holds success. God does in store for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk, whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Now this is not like an added bonus to doing the things that were laid out in the first four verses. Remember those first four verses say, if you do these, these things. And this is, not, this is not just an add-on, but this is a natural consequence that flows out of doing them. If you follow wisdom, then your life will generally follow a path of divine design, the way things are supposed to be, and you'll not get yourself into avoidable, problematic situations. If you do all of these things, it does not mean that your life will be problem-free. It does mean it'll be free of problems that you create. Wisdom that is welcomed and received will develop knowledge and it will develop righteousness. Verse 9 says, Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. By internalizing this parental teacher, mentor instruction, we'll come to fear and know God, but also learn righteousness intuitively. That is, you'll know how to live rightly. You'll go through life and you'll increasingly know what's right and just and fair and choose that path. When verse 9 says every good path, it refers to cart tracks or wagon ruts that are created while the ground is soft, wagon wheels press the trails that others are obliged to follow after it dries and hardens. So this creates then, doing this, and doing this regularly creates a, a path that you're stuck in but you're stuck in a good way because you habitually and intuitively make the right choices. Why? Because you're a changed person. And as a changed person, you are now practicing different choices. You're a person controlled by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, and therefore displaying the wisdom of God. Verse 10 says, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you. Understanding will guard you. Wisdom produces character. And wisdom protects 
from wickedness. With God's wisdom soaking down into our hearts, we're fortified against two temptations that we inevitably face. We're going to see those two temptations in a moment. The the world in Proverbs is accurately presented as a place of competing and conflicting voices. You have the words of the Father on the one hand, which are the words of Solomon, which are the words of God. You have that, but then you have the words of the crooked man, and you have the words of the strange woman. So in this life, son, in this life, all of us, we are summoned from many directions, many voices calling to us, from people that see and explain the world very differently. And wisdom protects us from wickedness by protecting us, first of all, from the wicked man. Verse 12, wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. One has said this, the key is in verse 12. Men whose words are perverse. They are often highly impressive, successful, formidable men. You secretly hope that they're going to include you in their inner ring at the office or in the dorm or the recording studio or wherever. Over coffee one day in friendly conversation, the hint will come that they want you, that they're welcoming you in. Sure, it's going to mean a little bending of the rules now and then, but cool people are never held back by that. In your insecurity, you want to be included. But if you take that step, the next step will be further away from Christ and the next step further still. You might end up in a scandal or in prison, or you might end up on the top of the heap, but either way you will be a fool with a heart that loves darkness. Here's what you need to know so that your heart can stay on alert as you move among such men this coming week. Perverted speech is not limited to bad words and dirty jokes. It includes even good words, but good words being used to turn things upside down. Upheaval, turning things upside down and inside out, that's the force of the Hebrew behind this word perverted. Words are supposed to represent reality. They should be true to what is, but words can be used to twist reality. Words can be used to flip meanings into their opposite. In politics, for example, Listen for the way people use words like patriotism. In sociology, listen for the way people use a good word like family. In religion, listen for the way people use a good word like Jesus. Bad men use good words to smuggle in bad realities, and some people are fooled. But if wisdom has entered your heart, tricky words will not for you pass the smell test. You might not even be able to explain what it is that bothers you, but you'll be protected by the wisdom that God has put inside of you. I can tell you, friends, that when I was in my early 20s, and most of you know that I worked for 20 years in the computer field, and I was being interviewed for one of the very first jobs that I would have in the, in the computer field. And I wanted to start out, I wanted to get some experience, This particular interview took place at the Renaissance Center 
at a high up office in the Renaissance Center. This company had a suite of offices and it was sweet. <laughs> the suite was sweet. And it was large and luxurious and they take you into this thing and there's, there's a, a bar and there are, it's just laid out beautifully and they have this beautiful buffet and all of that. And as I looked at the whole thing, it was just as I've just said to you. I can't tell you exactly why I didn't want to go there. But there was something about the allurements of the world beckoning me. And I said no. The guy who interviewed me for that, during that interview, and this may have been the giveaway, it's been a long time, but he had that bar, he actually had a drink while I was there. But that guy actually ended up dying as an alcoholic just years later. Of course, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know who he was. But who knows where something like that leads for you? And I say to you, I say to you friends, young people, but I say to all of us, friends, the world seeks to entice. But if you're given the gift of parents like I had that loved the Lord and taught me to love the Lord, it's not because I'm good, it's because God is good and he gave me these good authorities in my life to lead me in a good direction. Then use that, summon that, build that up, store that up so that you can use it at the time needed. It protects from the wicked man. It also, I say in your outline, protects from the wicked woman. Verse 16, wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. The key phrase in verse 16, her seductive words. Notice this is a church-going woman. Verse 17 says she made a covenant before God. And as we're going to see later in Proverbs, as it speaks in detail about women who would tice and lead astray, they do not always come off as loose women or floozies. No, what makes the word so seductive is they come from one with a veneer of respectability. Sometimes what is said is obscured by who we perceive to be saying it. If society has granted respectability, respectability to her, then how bad can it be? I mean, if, if Beyonce or J-Lo or Lady Gaga prance around half naked, but they're on prime time and adored by millions, including respectable people, then let's invite them to the inauguration to represent our country. Verse 18, Surely her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. He's saying that most often it's not just a one-night stand. It gets real complicated real fast. But if wisdom has entered your heart, you will know what to do immediately at the moment of temptation. You will do what Joseph did. Remember the story of Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. You'll do what Joseph did when he was sought to be seduced by Potiphar's wife, you'll do what Paul instructed Timothy to do, you'll run. That's what wisdom will do. It will run. And that's why Paul said to young Timothy, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If you're married, what you'll do at that time is you'll go home to your wife You'll look into her eyes, you'll tell her you love her, you'll give your 
heart to her completely and do so for the sheer joy of it over and over again. If you're single and you face that temptation, you'll go home, you'll kneel down in prayer, you'll give yourself body and soul all over again to your Savior and Lord. This is wisdom going down deep and protecting you. Wisdom protects from the wicked man, from the wicked woman, and lastly, it protects from death. Verse 20. Thus you will walk in the ways of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful will be torn from it. You see, wisdom is more than avoiding sin and its consequences. In avoiding these things, it provides positive benefits. Yes, a person who pursues wisdom avoids the wrong kind of people and can have the right kind of companions, good men and women, and the righteous, but merely escaping immorality is insufficient for a person of wisdom because he or she must also progressively pursue the good. And as a result, God blesses them. Wisdom will protect from premature death or other calamity brought on by our own actions. In this case, death or being removed from the beloved land that God had promised to His people in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. For the Israelites residing in the land of Canaan was a sign of God's favor. The contrast between the upright and the blameless who will enjoy fruitfulness in the land and God's blessing of agricultural prosperity and the contrast with the wicked and the unfaithful who will no longer be in the land because of either exile or death, that reminds us of what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 1. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Here's your take-home truth. Wisdom transforms one's life inside and out. First inside, then outward. Now we're going to bow and conclude. As we do, I summon, I call, I urge every person here, every person listening on live stream to begin that transformation from the inside out. That begins with a relationship with God. That begins by accepting, welcoming His truth about you, about Him, about your need. And God says this about all of us, that we are all prone to foolishness. <laughs> Wisdom is not our natural state. We're prone, our children are prone to foolishness. We're prone to foolishness. But God pulls us out of that by giving us spiritual life. He does that because He takes our sin away. He takes the penalty for our sin away because Jesus Christ died to pay that penalty. And then He takes the power of our sin away so that we now can choose the right path by giving us His Holy Spirit when we embrace Him. And so when we pray, here's what you do. You realize that you are one of these sinners like I am. Recognize that Christ died for your sin. And then say, Lord, I'm giving you my entire life. I'm going to repent. I'm going to go your way, no longer my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Let's bow together. Father, we do thank you for allowing us to look into your word and giving us these words of your servant, Solomon. You granted him wisdom above any other human being save the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And you've preserved that wisdom for us so that we can learn from it. Thank you for saving us, rescuing us from our sin and our foolishness so that we have eyes to see, we have hearts that are eager to embrace. And I pray, Lord, that there are any here who came into this room or watching by live stream who do not have that, that set of lenses through which to look at your word and through which to look at your world, that you would transform them now, that your spirit is moving upon them, giving them the spiritual life that's necessary to accept your words and then reap the benefits of wisdom. Lord, help those of us who have done that to continue to see that we have so many areas of our lives that have remained untouched by your truth. And so we remain in foolishness. We need to continually grow. Help us to desire that and so do that. Lord, I pray for those of us that have been put in positions to influence others directly by our teaching, by our lives, parents, teachers, mentors. Help us to see that we are representing you when we do that. So it's an awesome task. We place ourselves under you, gladly so. We want to represent you to those that you have placed under our instruction. Oh Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Use your word now to glorify yourself as we appropriate it in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.